Chapter Seven of Tales of the Five Towns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Clifton. Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Seven. Tiddy Follol. It was the dinner hour, and a group of ragged and clay-soiled apprentice boys were making a great noise in the yard of Henry Miners and Co.'s small, compact earthenware manufactory up at Toft End. Toft End caps the ridge to the east of Bursley, and Bursley, which has been the home of the potter for ten centuries, is the most ancient of the five towns in Staffordshire. The boys, dressed for the most part in shirt, trousers and boots, all equally ragged and insecure, were playing at prison bars. Soon the game ended abruptly in a clamorous dispute upon a point of law, and it was not recommenced. The dispute dying a natural death, the tireless energies of the boys needed a fresh outlet. Inspired by a common instinct, they began at once to bait one of their number, a slight youngster of twelve years, much better clothed than the rest, who had adventurously strolled in from a neighbouring manufactory. This child answered their jibes in an amiable, silly, drawling tone, which seemed to justify the epithet loony frequently applied to him. Now and then he stammered, and then companions laughed loud, and he with them. It was known that several years ago he had fallen down a flight of stone steps, alighting on the back of his head, and that ever since he had been deaf of one ear and under some trifling mental derangement. His sublime calmness under their jests baffled them, until the terrible figure of Mr. Machin, the engine-man, standing at the door of the slip-house, caught their attention and suggested a plan full of joyous possibilities. They gathered round the lad, and, talking in subdued murmurs, unanimously urged him with many persuasions to a certain course of action. He declined the scheme, and declined again. Suddenly a boy shouted, "'Thee dares na! I dare,' was the drawled, smiling answer. I tell thee thee dares na. I tell thee I dare, and thereupon he slowly but resolutely set out for the slip-house door and Mr. Machin. Eli Machin was, beyond doubt, the most considerable employee on Clark's bank, manufactory. Even Henry Clark approached him with a subtly indicated deference, and whenever Silas Emery, the immensely rich and miserly sleeping partner in the firm, came up to visit the works, these two men chatted as old friends. In a modern earthenware manufactory, the engine-room is the source of all activity, for, owing to the inventive genius of a famous and venerable son of the five towns, steam now presides at nearly every stage in the long process of turning earth into ware. It moves the pug-mill, the jollies and the marvellous batting-machines, dries the unfired clay, heats the printer's stoves, and warms the offices where the jacket-men dwell. Coal is a tremendous item in the cost of production, and a competent, economical engine-man can be sure of good wages and a choice of berths. He is desired like a good domestic servant. Eli Machin was the prince of engine-men. His engine never went wrong, his coal-bills were never extravagant, and supreme virtue, he was never absent on Mondays. From his post in the slip-house he watched over the whole works like a father, stern, gruff, forbidding, but to be trusted absolutely. 
He was sixty years old and had been putting by for nearly half a century. He lived in a tiny villa cottage with his bedridden cheerful wife and lent small sums on mortgage of approved freeholds at five per cent. No more and no less. Secure behind this rampart of saved money, he was the equal of the king on the throne. Not a magnate in all the five towns who would dare to be condescending to Eli Machin. He had been a sidesman at the old church. A trades union had once asked him to become a working-man candidate for the Bursley Town Council, but he had refused because he did not care for the possibility of losing caste by being concerned in a strike. His personal respectability was entirely unsullied, and he worshipped this abstract quality as he worshipped God. There was only one blot, but how foul, on Eli Machin's career, and that had been dropped by his daughter Miriam, when, defying his authority, she married a scene-shifter at Hanbridge Theatre. The atrocious idea of being connected with the theatre had rendered him speechless for a time. He could but endure it in the most awful silence that ever hid passionate feeling. Then, one day, he had burst out, "'The wench is no better than a tiddy for lol. Only this solitary phrase. Nothing else. What a tiddy-for-lol was, no one quite knew, but the word getting about stuck to him, and for some weeks boys used to shout it after him in the streets, until he caught one of them and in thirty seconds put an end to the practice. Thenceforth Miriam, with all hers, was dead to him. When her husband expired of consumption, Eli Machin saw the avenging arm of the Lord in action. And when her boy grew to be a source of painful anxiety to her, he said to himself that the wrath of heaven was not yet cooled towards this impious daughter. The passage of fifteen years had apparently in no way softened his resentment. The challenged lad in Miner's yard slowly approached the slip-house door and halted before Eli Machin, grinning. "'Well, young un,' the old man said absently, "'what dost want?' Tiddy for lol, grandfather, the child drawled in his silly, irritating voice, and added, They said I dare na say it to ye. Without an instant's hesitation, Eli Machin raised his still powerful arm, and, catching the boy under the ear, knocked him down. The other boys yelled with unaffected pleasure and ran away. Get up and be off with ye, ye dunna belong to this bank, said Eli Machin in cold anger to the lad. But the lad did not stir, the lad's eyes were closed, and he lay white on the stones. Eli Machin bent down and peered through his spectacles at the prone form upon which the midday sun was beating. "'It's Miriam's boy,' he ejaculated under his breath, and looked round as if in inquiry. The yard was empty. Then, with quick decision, he picked up this limp and inconvenient parcel of humanity, and hastened, ran, with it out of the yard, into the road. Down the road he ran, turned to the left into Clough Street, and stopped before a row of small brown cottages. At the open door of one of these cottages a woman sat sewing. She was rather stout and full-bosomed, with a fair, fresh face, full of sense and peace. She looked under thirty, but was older. 
"'Here's thy Tommy, Miriam,' said Eli Machin shortly. "'He give me some of his sauce, and I doubt I've done him an injury.' The woman dropped her sewing. "'Eh, hey, dear,' she cried, "'is that lad of mine in mischief again? I do hope he's no limb-broken.' "'It dinna that,' said the old man, "'but he's dazed-like. Better lay him on th squab.' She calmly took Tommy and placed him gently down on the check-covered sofa under the window. "'Come in, father, do.' The man obeyed, astonished at the entire friendliness of this daughter, whom, though he had frequently seen her, he had never spoken to for more than ten years. Her manner, at once filial and quite natural, perfectly ignored the long breach, and disclosed no trace of animosity. Father and daughter examined the unconscious child. Pale, pulseless, cold, he lay on the sofa like a corpse, except for the short, faint breaths which he drew through his blue lips. "'I doubt I've killed him,' said Eli. "'Nay, nay, father,' and her face actually smiled. This supremacy of the soul against years of continued misfortune lifted her high above him, and he suddenly felt himself an inferior creature. "'I'll go for the doctor,' he said. "'Nay, I shall need ye.' and she put her head out of the window. "'Mrs. Wally, will ye let your Lucy run quick for the club doctor? My Tommy's hurt.' The whole street awoke instantly from its nap, and in a few moments every door was occupied. Miriam closed her own door softly as though she might wake the boy, and spoke in whispers to people through the window, finally telling them to go away. When the doctor came, half an hour afterwards, she had done all that she knew for Tommy, without the slightest apparent result. "'What is it?' asked the doctor curtly, as he lifted the child's thin and lifeless hand. Eli Machin explained that he had boxed the boy's ear. "'Tommy was impudent to his grandfather,' Miriam added hastily. "'Which ear?' the doctor inquired. "'It was the left.' He gazed into it, and then raised the boy's right leg and arm. "'There's no paralysis,' he said. Then he felt the heart, and then took out his stethoscope and applied it, listening intently. "'Canst hear out?' the old man said. "'I cannot,' he answered. "'Don't say that, doctor, don't say that,' said Miriam, with an accent of appeal. "'In these cases it is almost impossible to tell whether the patient is alive or dead. We must wait.' Mrs. Baddeley, make a mustard plaster for his feet, and we will put another over the heart. And so they waited one hour while the clock ticked and the mustard plasters gradually cooled. Then Tommy's lips parted. After another half hour, the doctor said, I must go now. I'll come again at six. Do nothing but apply fresh plasters. Be sure to keep his neck free. He is breathing, but I may as well be plain with you. There is a great risk of your child dying in this condition. Neighbours were again at the window, and Miriam drew the blind, waving them away. At six o'clock the doctor reappeared. There is no change, he remarked. I will call in before I go to bed. When he lifted the latch for the third time, at ten o'clock, Eli Machin and Miriam still sat by the sofa, and Tommy still lay thereon, moveless, a terrible enigma. But the glass lamp was lighted on the mantelpiece, and Miriam's sewing, by which she earned a livelihood, had been hidden out of sight. "'There is no change,' said the doctor. "'You can do nothing except hope.' "'And pray,' the calm mother added. 
Eli neither stirred nor spoke. For nine hours he had absolutely forgotten his engine. He knew the boy would die. The clock struck eleven, twelve, one, two, three, each time fretting the nerves of the old man like a rasp. It was the hour of summer dawn. A cold grey light fell unkindly across the small figure on the sofa. "'Open the door a bit, father,' said Miriam. "'The parlour's getting close. The lad canna breathe.' "'Nay, lass,' Eli sighed as he stumbled obediently to the door. "'The lad'll breathe no more. I've killed him in my anger.' He frowned heavily, as though someone was annoying him. "'Hist!' she exclaimed, when, after extinguishing the lamp, she returned to her boy's side. "'He's reddened! He's reddened! Look thee at his cheeks, father!' She seized the child's inert hands and rubbed them between her own. The blood was now plain in Tommy's face. His legs faintly twitched. His breathing was slower. Miriam moved the coverlet and put her head upon his heart. "'It's beating loud, father,' she cried. "'Bless God!' Eli stared at the child with the fixity of a statue. Then Tommy opened his eyes for an instant. The old man groaned. Tommy looked vacantly round, closed his eyes again, and was unmistakably asleep. He slept for one minute, then waked. Eli involuntarily put a hand on the sofa. Tommy gazed at him, and, with the most heavenly, innocent smile of recognition, lightly touched his grandfather's hand. Then he turned over on his right side. In the anguish of sudden joy, Eli gave a deep, piteous sob. That smile burnt into him like a coal fire. "'Now for the beef tea,' said Miriam, crying. "'Beef tea?' the boy repeated after him, mildly questioning. "'Yes, my poppet,' she answered. And then aside, "'Father, he can hear in his left ear. Did you notice it?' "'It's a miracle, a miracle of God,' said Eli. In a few hours Tommy was as well as ever. Indeed, better. Not only was his hearing fully restored, but he had ceased to stammer, and the thin, almost imperceptible cloud upon his intellect was dissipated. The doctor expressed but little surprise at these phenomena, and, in fact, stated that similar things had occurred often before and were duly written down in the books of medicine. But Eli Machin's firm, instinctive faith that Providence had intervened will never be shaken. Miriam and Tommy now live in the villa cottage with the old people. End of chapter 7